Um, but tonight we're going to be looking into the scriptures and uh, I'm going to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 2. In your Bibles it's page 1173, right at the bottom, reading over into 1174. And uh, I'm going to pick up actually from verse 4. I think last week Marcus was preaching and he was doing the first five verses of Ephesians 2. Um, and I'm really going to be focused on the, the next five, but we, let's start it from verse 4. This is what um, the Apostle Paul says in this letter. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And Lord, we want to pray tonight that you would open this word to us and add the blessing that we need to the reading of your word. Amen. Now, it's really interesting um, how much hardwired into us as human beings is the need to understand. Um, and if you've got little children, then you will be aware that there comes a little stage somewhere between two and five where they're constantly asking questions, okay? If you've got grandchildren at that stage, or if you're around children at that stage, you will know that the little question, why, comes up again and again and again. And um, I read one study that says that actually between the ages of two and five, children on average ask 40,000 questions. Now, some of you are probably going, my kids like did that by three, they're so advanced, it's great. But the reason children ask questions is, is not normally because they're trying to sort of resist you occasionally why do I have to brush my teeth might be a little bit of you know defiance but normally children genuinely ask questions because they genuinely want to understand because it's hardwired into us we we are beings that demand understanding of the world around us and so when you're a little person and everything's strange then you want to know why now to be honest as you grow up you often come to terms with that but to be honest, sometimes your experience of life then causes you to ask questions about why has this happened to me or why isn't it working out the way I want it to be. But let's not forget the most fundamental question is the question the child is asking, which is why is the world the way it is? And the biggest question is why is it here anyway? You know, wh why do we exist? Why, why have a universe and why have us in it? What's the purpose of all of this? Now, that's a fundamental question. Um, some of you will know that before, before I um, did training in theology to become a vicar and all that sort of stuff, um, I went to university. I was a, a student. I was a math student. I know. Fascinating, aren't I? And um, every now and then, about every five years, I bring out my inner geek. And you're really fortunate. Tonight's the night. I'm going to bring my, my inner math nerd out and share it with you the two of you that are interested, the rest of you, nice nap, it's fine, join us in five minutes. Um, because some people need to know this stuff, because we want to know why, right? And 
it's interesting because a lot of people think that when you get into maths and sciences and stuff like that, that the further you go, the more explanations you will get, and therefore the more answers you have, and so the, the less likely you are to need faith. That's the old stereotype. The old stereotype was that like, if you did maths and science, you probably wouldn't end up being a Christian. You know, because you get loads of answers. Maths and science will give you loads of answers. Well, I want to tell you, it's exactly the opposite. The further you go, the deeper you go, the more you realize, the more we know, the less we know. You know, we just discover we don't know stuff. Things are more complicated than we thought they were. And you, you end up getting a few kind of explanations, and then you look at it and you go, but I don't know why. I don't know why. The big questions, so often we haven't got answers. Science is not bad at telling us some of the, the what's going on, and occasionally it gives us a little bit of an insight into how it's going on, but it's just absolutely terrible at telling us why. And the, the whole thing you need to understand is that the universe is unbelievably unlikely. You know, the universe should not exist. I mean, not even, it, it's sort of like fairly unlikely. It's so beyond unlikely it is kind of unbelievable. You know, if you're somebody who believes that the universe exists and is capable of sustaining life, like, you're believing, like, the most ridiculous thing ever. So one physicist calculated that the odds of a universe that could sustain life are 1 in 10 to the 229 powers. Now, now, some of you are thinking, oh, no, don't want to come to church for a math lesson. This is ridiculous. But that basically means the odds of human life existing, or any life existing, even like just you know germs and microbes and stuff, is one with 229 zeros written after it. That's a lot, right? Some of you are thinking, I don't know. I, I glazed over as soon as you started mentioning numbers. Well, for comparison, just so you've got a sense of scale, the number of grains of sand in the Sahara Desert, right? is one with 28 zeros written after it. So add another zero, and another zero, and another zero, and do that 201 times, you're kind of getting a sense of just how unlikely the universe is. Because it's so unlikely, physicists don't like that. They really don't like things being unlikely and random and unexplainable. So they feel like, how is it possible that happens? Well, they've got a great theory. They look at it and they go, okay, so this is fine-tuning, that's what they say, call it fine-tuning. The universe is so finely tuned, nobody knows why, it's so complicated, how does it even exist? Well, maybe it's not the only universe, maybe there's a multiverse, and they've had lots of goes at it, and it basically the, you know, the universe has been having a go at it, failing, having a go at it, failing, having a go at it, failing. It's been doing this an almost infinite number of times, uncalculable number of times, and we're just lucky we're in the one that works. So it's a little interesting thing because you really can't test that. But then people come along and go look at it and they go, well, actually, isn't that a little bit like a weird gambler going into a casino and kind of thinking that my luck's been really, really bad all night, so next time I throw the dice, it's got to work. You know, because by the law of averages, you know, I've thrown the dice 700 times and lost all my money, so I'm going to put my house on the next one because this next one's got to work, Right. Now, you know that's ridiculous, don't you? Because you know that whatever happened before has no, makes no effect on what's about to happen now. In actual fact, the problem with the universe is the other way around. It's a, it's a similar problem, but not quite the same one. Basically, it means that if you, came into, if you came into a casino and you saw somebody, and the first thing they did was they threw the dice, and they threw an incredibly un, 
an incredibly unbelievably lucky roll, that you would look at that and you would go, wow, they must have been here for centuries throwing dice. That's a stupid thing to think, isn't it? But that's basically what the physicists are saying with the multiverse, because the only other conclusion is that there must be a guiding loving hand that has made it possible for life to exist. So to be honest, you go into the faculties, the universities, you'll find as many Christians right up in the sciences as you would do in any walk of life. Because the universe is incredible and life is incredibly unlikely. And because we can't answer the why question. So you're thinking, okay, well I came to church here from the Bible, not from a textbook. Well, surely the Bible tells us why. And the answer is, yeah, the Bible does tell us why. Um, but often we miss it because what we see in the Bible is so surprising that perhaps we haven't really got our heads around what it's actually saying. So where in the Bible would you look to find out why life exists and why are we here? What is it all about? Well, you might say, well, let's go to the book of Genesis. That makes sense. You know, Genesis is the book of creation. That's great. And actually, Genesis is brilliant because it tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. It's really a book of who rather than why. It doesn't tell us how he did it. It doesn't tell us why he did it particularly. It tells us who did it. And actually, it only really tells us that only really tells us about creation for a chapter and a half. Genesis is 50 chapters long. Genesis is basically the book of what the hell happened here? It's, it, you know, it was good in the beginning. It's a complete mess now. That's, that's the point of the book of Genesis. Or you could go, well, let's go to the book of Revelation at the other end. Revelation tells us where we're going and, and what, what's going to happen in the end and what it's all about. And when you get there, it's like, okay, I'm now going to tell you what, what you're moving towards. But to be honest, it's... It's a bit complicated, so I'm just going to give you a load of pictures and freak you out forever. <laughs> so that's not very helpful either. So I want to make a suggestion, and my suggestion is that you might like to look at the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, because most of Paul's letters are letters written to churches that have got problems, and he writes them a letter to sort them out and put them back on track. Except for Ephesians, it's one of those letters where we look at it and we go, I don't really know what this letter was about, except that it's a big picture of what God has done for us, and therefore how we should live. And that's the way he's written this. So the Apostle Paul has written three chapters of, this is the amazing thing that God has done, and then chapters four, five, and six, this then is how that we should live. It's a great, it's a great book. Um, one of the wonderful things, actually, about the first three chapters, the bit that tells us about what God has done, is that you can pretty much get a summary by looking at verse 10 of each chapter. So Ephesians 1.10 says this, that the big plan of God, which he was going to put into effect when the right time came along, is to bring all things together under heaven and earth under one head, Jesus. So that's chapter 1, verse 10. God's big plan is to bring everything in earth and heaven together and make Jesus the head over all of it. Brilliant. Second chapter, 2 verse 10, the last verse that we read just a moment ago, says, we, those of us who have been saved, those of us who um, have come through the cross into the resurrection and into new life with Jesus, we are God's handiwork, or that could be translated masterpiece, and actually the, the Greek word there is poem. You're God's poem. We are God's masterpiece, his poem. And we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which the Father had prepared in advance for us to do. 
And then he kind of makes the big picture even bigger. And in chapter 3, verse 10, he says that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, to all the rebellious powers, all the, all the demons and all the false gods that aren't gods who are basically looking at the world and going, what a mess, what are you doing about it? God is saying, I'm doing the church. Church is amazing. Church is a bunch of people of all sorts of ages and stages, from different ethnic backgrounds, different classes, people with all sorts of different issues going on in their lives, people who have nothing in common in the earth. But when they come to church, they're brothers and sisters because they, you've got Jesus that you're closer to somebody else who's got Jesus than you are to anybody else in the world. Because these are people who are my new humanity. These are people who have been saved from their sins and enabled to start leading new lives. And they're not good at it yet, but they're getting better as the Holy Spirit works. These are people who are gradually beginning to reflect my glory in the world. You want to see what I'm doing in the world, God says? Look at the church. But he still doesn't tell us why. Why did God do that? Again, it tells us what. Maybe talking about the cross and how Jesus came and died in our place and took our sins so that any barrier between us and God would be removed. Maybe that tells us a little bit about the how. It doesn't tell us the why. Except it's in the text. It's in the text and we skim over it often because we, we look at the amazing what and we forget the even more amazing why. So last week, Marcus talked about God being rich in mercy. But just note how that verse begins. Verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. By grace, we have been saved. Why are we saved? Because of his great love for us. So why, why did God save us? Because he loved us so much that he sent his son. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You know, we can skim over that because of the wonder of the cross. We forget it was because he loved us. But this is even more impressive. In verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So you've been saved. You no longer have your sin counting against you. Now, God has raised you up and he's seated you in the heavenly realms. Why did he do that? In order that in the coming ages, he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in Christ Jesus. So why did God raise us up? Why did he seat us in heaven? Why has he destined us for that? Because he wants to love us forever. It's an amazing thought. God did it because he loves us so much he wants to love us in the coming ages forever to keep showing us his grace, to keep showing us his love, to keep showing us his kindness, which we're already experiencing in Christ Jesus. And one day we will stand in the fullness of all of that. Now, if you've been coming to church for a while, you might have heard us say, I've certainly said it many times, that we were created to worship God. We were created to love God. And it's true, it is true. But actually, it's not the emphasis that Paul brings here. What he actually says here is, we were created so that he could love us. We were created so that he could love us forever. What an amazing thought. We were created as an act of overflowing love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before everything else, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfect community, loving each other, giving, receiving, sharing love. But even that wasn't enough. So out of that,
that love. The Father brought something to love us. It's, it's one way of looking at it to say that actually the Father wanted a bride for his son so his son would have someone to love forever and to show the riches of his grace and love and mercy and compassion and kindness to. And it's so mind-blowing that God would want to do that for us, that it changes everything. Now, it's worth noting the, the repetition of the word grace throughout this passage. Grace means something you don't deserve. You don't deserve. You could never earn this. You're never worth it, except God said you are. It's in verse 5, and it's verse 7, and it's in verse 8. It keeps coming back to this word grace. What it basically means is that our sins, the things that we've done wrong, all the faults and failings that we have, those things don't make it so that we scrape into heaven. What they actually do is they make it so that we get into heaven. God's love for us is even more wonderful because we were broken, sinful people. That he loved us even when we did all those things to hurt him. That he, he loved us even when we didn't deserve it. And the more we don't deserve it, it just makes his love greater. You know, our sins should be something we grieve over, but they shouldn't make us insecure about God's love. The more, it's almost like the more we sin, the more he loves. It just makes his love more and more wonderful. Now, sometimes you hear people say, oh, the problem with Christians is they're too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. That is exactly the wrong way around. Because if we were more heavenly-minded, if we knew what it was and where we're going, only then would we be any earthly good. If you're just earthly-minded, you're no earthly good because you're part of the problem. You're, you're just part of everything else that's going wrong in the world. But if you know, because you're heavenly-minded, if you know that you're loved, if you know that God loves you and wants to love you forever and be with you forever so he can show you the incomparable riches of his grace and kindness, then down here you go, wow, and you start living differently. And you, you start living in a way that's secure, and you start living in a way that's confident, and you start living in a way that's courageous, because you know where you're going. And it changes everything that you see. If you're not a Christian, this life is the best life you're ever going to have. Sorry. If you're a Christian, this life is the worst life you're ever going to have. Even when it's quite good sometimes. If you're a Christian, this life is nothing compared to what comes next. It's, it has its little tastes, it has its glimpses, it has its glories, but they will be utterly consumed in the wonder that we're moving towards. See, the Bible can't even find words for this. It, it, it tries to describe it and it goes, oh, let's give you some pictures again. So it says that you know, we're moving, the best the Bible can come up with is, is to say we're moving towards a wedding feast. Because that's about joy and celebration and consummation and faithfulness and love. It's like we're moving towards that moment of anticipation. That's the best the Bible can do. Everything about how we live is transformed when we realize that God created us so he could love us forever. I honestly think most, if not all, deficiencies in the Christian life are basically down to not realizing how much God loves us. You know, why don't we love other people so much? We just don't realize how much he loves us. Why, why we feel insecure about our sins? We just don't realize how much he loves us. Why are we you know, cautious about his promises and worried about stepping out in faith? It's, we just don't realize how much he loves us. If we could just get a revelation of how much he loves us, that he created us 
so he could be with us and love us forever. It would change everything. And it will also change how we see other people as well. You know, so often we, we, we've got a glimpse of the gospel, and the glimpse of the gospel is basically, well, Jesus died for sinners, so sin is the problem, and if, you, if Jesus died for sinners, then that sin can be taken away, and we're open, and we're able to come back into a relationship with God the Father. And so we think of people who don't know Jesus as being sinners in need of salvation, because that's what we knew we were when we came to faith. You know, once we came to faith, we realized in the goodness of God and the holiness of God that we can't stand in that place. And we, really, we then become so grateful for what Jesus has done for us. But the problem is, if that's our orientation, with the best will in the world, even when it's true, when we try and say to people that they're sinners in need of salvation, they hear it as judgment, even if we put ourselves under the same thing. You know? Even if we go to them and say, look, you're a sinner in need of salvation, and I am as well, I was as well. Most of them look at it and go, well, you might have a guilt and problems, but I don't. You know? I just, I can't relate to that. But if you, if you look at people as lost children in need of love, then you will be tapping into something that they will acknowledge. Because every single one of us, in here and out there, every single one of us knows this. Ultimately, you need to know that you're loved. That's, that's what motivates you in life. You need to know that you're loved. I was talking to somebody who works in one of the mental institutions. She said, if I could just convince them that they were loved. When you hear the stories of people that end up in those places, it's because of the way they've been treated in life. It's because of the, the lack of a foundation of love given to them by a parent or you know, because of things that have gone wrong. If they just knew that they were loved, how much quicker would it be to get towards health? And us, in our lives, that our insecurities, if we're fortunate, and we know that there are people in our lives who love us, there's so often a sense of nagging insecurity because no human love is sufficient. It's not what we're made for. God brought us forth not so that we could love each other. That's not bad. But he brought us forth so that he could love us. And apart from that, we're never going to be satisfied. So if anybody ever asks you what's the meaning of life, it's this. God is love. He is so much love that he brought us forth because he wants to love us forever. And that's why he intervened and said, I don't want you to be little things that live for a while and then die and we're separated forever. He, he stepped in after we made a mess of it in Genesis chapter 2. He stepped in and he said, I want to love you forever. So I'll send my son to open up a way to make you be changed, to transform you so that you can be with forever. And in the coming ages, the coming ages, that's eternity long, I will show you the incomparable riches of my grace and my kindness, which you're already experiencing in Christ Jesus. We need a revelation of that. It needs to be something that doesn't just go into our heads because we read it on a page, but something that goes into our hearts. And the Bible has a wonderful promise that says, hope does not disappoint us. It's in Romans chapter 5. Hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to pray for tonight. That the Holy Spirit will pour the love of God into our hearts. So would you like to stand?